This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, who would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. I know that for the past several weeks, you guys have been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so I'm excited this morning about preaching this parable because what the Sermon on the Mount does is the Sermon on the Mount shows you the highest demands of the law in order to drive you to Christ. There are really two ways to approach the Sermon on the Mount. One is as a list of rules to keep to earn God's love. The other way is a, a guide for holy living and a, a, as a guide to show you your sin so that you can receive God's love. Well, the parable that we're going to look at this morning that Lance just read shows us in story form what this looks like. It embodies the way we respond to the law. One of these people will try to earn God's love through their performance, and the other one will receive God's love by grace. So please bow your heads and pray with me that the Holy Spirit would show that to us this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we confess that when we see the law, our hearts are prone to look at it as a way to earn your love and acceptance. We create a spiritual checklist of things that we can do and say to earn your love. We create a spiritual checklist that we hand to other people. We ask them to do these things in order to earn our love and to earn your love. We look at the Sermon on the Mount and we see all of the demands of the law and we go, yeah, I can keep that and I have kept that. This is wrong, Lord. We come to you and we confess that we need you by your Holy Spirit to show us the magnitude of the law so that we might receive the magnitude of your grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Lord, we pray that your grace would abound this morning, that you would open our hearts and our minds to see it. We pray that you would show us the upside-down nature of the kingdom. We pray that you would change our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would help us to love our neighbors well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, over the holidays, I saw a clip of the show called The View. I don't watch The View, but I saw the clip. So I'm not an expert on The View. I'm just, I just know about this one clip, okay? And on The View, they take a topic, 
and they have a panel that discusses it. I guess that's why it's called The View, right? So, and on this panel, they have Christians and non-Christians, they have religious people and irreligious people. Well, on the clip that I saw, they discussed a billboard, and the billboard was sponsored by atheists, and it says, and it said, don't go to church, be good for goodness sakes. And so the idea was that during the holidays, instead of celebrating Christmas by going to church and worshiping, you should just try to be good for goodness sakes. Don't try to be good for God's sakes or Jesus' sake or anybody else's sake, just for goodness sake. So the panel was discussing this billboard. The first person that they asked was a Christian. And they said, what do you think about this billboard? Does it offend you? And she said, does it offend me? No, I think it's awesome because it gives me an instant way to talk to people about the gospel and to explain to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they went down the row and they each kind of gave their opinion. And they got to the end and there was a girl named Raven on the end. She used to have a show called That's So Raven. I'm sure you've all seen it. And Raven said, well, I don't understand what all the fuss is anyways. Everybody, all the religions teach, all teach the same thing. All religions teach that you should basically just be good, try to be a nice person, and then you'll get to go to heaven. And the two Christians on the panel couldn't get the words out of their mouths fast enough. They were talking over each other to try to correct her view. And what they essentially said is this is, no, that's not what Christianity is about at all. Christianity teaches something totally different. It teaches that you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I kid you not, Raven goes, what? Does it really? She was utterly astounded and shocked by grace. She was shocked by grace. She was shocked that the kingdom of God operates on a totally different principle than the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. The values in God's kingdom are totally opposite than the values of this world. The attitudes and actions in God's kingdom are totally opposite than the kingdom of man. It's upside-down. And there's no better illustration of the upside-downness of the kingdom than this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so when we look at this, what we're going to see is that the kingdom of God operates on grace. And that leads us to Christ's righteousness, and that leads us to love our neighbor. Whereas the kingdom of man operates based on performance, and that leads us to our own righteousness, and that leads us to hold other people in contempt and to not love them well. Have you ever been surprised by grace? Have you ever been shocked by the upside-downness of the kingdom of God? Well, if not, I hope this morning that as we look at this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, that you're going to be shocked, and I hope to be surprised. And if you've been shocked and surprised before by grace, I hope that you're shocked and surprised again. And I hope that as we look at this radical nature of the kingdom and its up, upside downness, I pray that that will increase your love for your heavenly father and it will increase your love for your neighbor as well. When you look at this parable, it, it's incredible. There are three things in this parable that are totally upside down. There's upside down prayer, upside down righteousness, and upside down character. 
And the parable starts out with this upside-down prayer. It says, the two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Now that phrase, standing by himself, is interesting because what, the, what, what Jesus is probably saying is he didn't stand by the tax collector. He didn't stand by the bad guy. He didn't stand by the unclean guy. He had to separate himself from the tax collector to pray. So that tells us something about him. It tells us that he doesn't like the tax collector, that the tax collector is bad and wrong, and he's separating himself from him. Then we look at this prayer. It says God, and after the prayer, he says nothing else about God. But look what he says. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What did he talk about in his prayer? He said, I, about six times. He talked about himself. It's a self-centered prayer. What else did he talk about? He talked about other people. He talked about adulterers, extortioners, and even this tax collector over here. He's comparing himself to other people. Then he, he gives off all the things that he does that are exceptional. He says, I fast twice a week. There were only a couple fasts required in the Old Testament for Jews. So he's multiplying the fasting that he's supposed to do. I give tithes of all that I get. That means he's tithing off of everything. Every single thing that comes into his house, everything he has, he's tithing off of it. What is he doing? He's presenting his spiritual resume. He's coming to God. He's saying, look, God, I'm better than those people. I've done all of these things. And I am really great, and I'm really special. And that's it. So the prayer is self-centered, it's prideful, it's performance-driven, it's comparative. It's the self-righteous prayer of a Pharisee. Now compare that with the prayer of the tax collector. Verse 13 says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice the difference of the posture. Jesus says the tax collector is standing far off, maybe because he didn't feel worthy to come into the presence of God. Why wouldn't he feel worthy? Tax collectors were bad people. They were religious people. I'm sorry, irreligious people who didn't keep the rules, who didn't love others well, who were outcasts because they were just bad people. The modern-day equivalent of a tax collector would be a pimp or some sort of extortioner. They would use people and manipulate people for their own gain. So you're talking about one of the worst of worst societies coming into the temple to pray to God, and he knows it, and so he can't stand close. He has to stand far off. And then look at his prayer. He says, God, be merciful to me. The word merciful uh, would be like uh, saying, God, please atone for me. Please pay for my sins. He's asking God to pay for his sins because he knows he has a bunch of it and he knows he can't pay for it. And then at the end there it says, a sinner. Well, if you look at this in the Greek, there's an article there, and it could also be translated, the sinner. He's not just saying that I'm a sinner among many. 
he could possibly be saying that he is the sinner, that he's the chief among sinners, that there's nobody out there worse than him. He's the lowest of the lows. And so you have two totally different types of prayer. You have one that's self-centered, self-righteous, and performance-based. You have one that is God-centered, humbled, and based on God's mercy. Which one does Jesus approve? He says, this man, meaning the tax collector, went away justified. And we're going to talk about what that word justified means here in a minute. But essentially, Jesus was saying is, the tax collector is the one who's right. The tax collector is the one who's right with God. He got it right. And this shows us the radical upside-down nature of prayer in the kingdom of God. When we pray in God's kingdom as God's kingdom people, we don't come and pray out of our own worthiness. We come and pray out of our neediness. We don't pray out of our own worthiness. We, don't, we pray out of our neediness. We don't come to God with our spiritual resume and say, look, God, I've done this, this, and this. I went to church. I tithed. I was nice to people. I worked hard. I tried to love my kids well. Here's my resume. Accept me. We come to God out of our neediness, and we say, Father in heaven, you were so good and so gracious to me, and I'm so broken. Would you please forgive me? And the Lord says, the one who comes to him out of his neediness, that's the one who understands who I am. That's the one who understands that I am his heavenly father. It's the difference between the way my seven-year-old and my four-year-old come to me with requests and the way my one-year-old comes to me with requests. I have accidentally slash intentionally <laughs> taught my kids to come and request food from me out of their own performance. You see, oftentimes my seven-year-old, my four-year-old, they won't eat all their plates. I'm sure they're not the only ones. I'm looking at Hudson, right? I'm sure Tucker and Emery are not the only ones, right? They won't eat all their food on their plate. And so I, I want to be a good dad. I'm trying to teach them to eat all the good food that we put on their plate. And I said, okay, if you want to have a treat later, then you have to clean your plate. And I've said that enough that now, before the meal's even over, they'll say, hey, daddy, have I eaten enough to get a treat? I'm like, now you got to eat your plate. And then like later on, if they want a treat, they'll come to me. And they'll say, hey, dad, hey, dad, I ate all my lunch today. Can I get a treat? I'm like, okay. What have I done? I've totally taught them to approach me based on performance to get their treats. Now, let's contrast that with the way my one-year-old comes to me. She can't talk, and she hasn't done anything but poop and cry and make messes all day long. And she comes to me, Francis, and she says, ah, ah, ah. She's got nothing in her hands. She's throwing herself totally on my mercy and grace to receive what she needs. She's coming out of her neediness and not out of her worthiness. That's kingdom prayer. When we come to our Heavenly Father, we don't come out of our own performance, our own worthiness. We're not seven-year-olds and four-year-olds trying to earn a treat. We come to God and we say, I need you, and I don't deserve it. I've made a mess of things all day long. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It shows us the upside-down nature of prayer, but that's not all it shows us. It shows us that this upside-down prayer actually leads to something greater. It leads to upside-down righteousness. 
It leads to upside down righteousness. Jesus says that the tax collector went away justified rather than the Pharisee. Now, what does that word justified mean? Technical, Christianese, lingo. What does it mean? Okay. It's a legal term that means to be acquitted or forgiven. It means that all of the charges against you have been wiped away. Your record is clean. You get to go free as if you had never done anything wrong before. Let me give you an illustration. I work on campus at Oklahoma State University. I park there every day. Therefore, I get lots and lots of parking tickets. I have two parking tickets in my car right now, one for $40 and one for $20. And if I continue not to pay those parking tickets, I will continue to uh, accrue uh, interest. They'll charge me interest. I'll probably get more parking tickets, and those parking tickets will continue to add up. Now, at some point, (laughs) I can either pay those parking tickets, and those fines and fees will be removed, or I could just sit there and continue to rack up more parking tickets and more fines, and the, the amount will grow and grow and grow. What the Bible teaches is that spiritually, every day through our attitudes and our actions, we're all accruing tickets called sin. That our spiritual account is going in the negative more and more and more and more. And that spiritual account has to be paid for either by us or by somebody else. It has to be paid for. Now, what's shocking about this text is Jesus says that the tax collector, the irreligious person, the bad guy, is the one that's forgiven. This text would have been utterly shocking to anybody that heard it, and it should shock us as well. The first way it's shocking is because Jesus is saying that both the tax collector and the Pharisee are sinful. That means that both the irreligious person and the religious person are sinful. Both the person who looks nice and neat and clean and tries to keep the law on the outside is sinful, and the person who's broken and messed up, and you can see it on their face every morning when they walk into church, that they're sinful as well. They're both sinful. But then it says that the bad guy is is forgiven. Why? Because he threw himself on the mercy of the court. And the good guy is unforgiven. His debt still stands. Why? Because he came on his own performance and his own merit. He tried to get forgiveness based on his own resume. Now, let me go back to my traffic tickets. That's what this would look like. It would look like this. Imagine that I went before the judge about my traffic tickets, the almighty judge of parking tickets at Oklahoma State. I'm sure there's one. I've never been to him, but I'm sure there is one. I'm going to find him someday. I'm going to go appeal a parking ticket just so I can see this judge. I come before the almighty parking ticket judge of Oklahoma State, and he says, you've got all these fines, but somebody else paid them for you. You can go free. At that point, I can do two things. I can either throw myself on the mercy of the court and say, thank you, judge. I'm so appreciative. Thank you. I don't deserve this. I will receive the mercy of the court, and I will go free. Or I could say, well, judge, I really have done really well on my parking tickets lately. I've tried not to get as many parking tickets. I tried really hard not to get those parking tickets. Would you please forgive me because I'm trying to do better? And he would say, like, no, 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 wait a minute. The the parking ticket's been paid. Somebody else paid them. 
But imagine if I continued to come to him and say, no, but I'm doing good. I, I'm doing better. I'm keeping, the, I'm keeping all the parking laws at Oklahoma State, which are really hard to keep if you've never been there. Even when I got these two parking tickets, I was actually trying not to get the parking tickets. I made like a New Year's resolution to get less parking tickets this year. And twice I parked in spots that I thought in my good intentions were legal parking spots, and they weren't. So what if I came to the judge and I said, but judge, I really tried to be good this time. And I continued to bring my parking ticket performance to him. He would say, but wait, it's been paid. It's been paid. If you continue to bring your good works to Jesus, to God, to pay for those parking tickets, it won't work. It won't work. The only way that those parking tickets can be forgiven, the only way your sin can be forgiven, is by throwing yourself on the mercy of the court. And that mercy is that Jesus Christ has paid for our sins. That Jesus Christ has lived the life we couldn't live. He's died the death we should have died. He rose from the grave to pay for those sins so that we might know that we've been forgiven. That's Romans 3. That's Easter. And the only way that we can be forgiven is to throw ourselves in the mercy of the court and say, thank you. You have paid for those tickets. You have paid for that sin for me. Okay, let me give you another analogy. Easter's coming up. This Easter, what I want you to do is this. I want you to go to the Easter egg hunt. And I want you to watch the little kids try to pick up Easter eggs. Because eventually this will happen. Their basket will get full, their hands will get full, and there will be an Easter egg on the ground. And they will sit there and they will look at their Easter eggs. And they will look at the basket and they will look at the Easter egg on the ground and they will have no clue what to do. Because in order for them to pick up that Easter egg, what do they have to do? They have to put their own Easter eggs down. In order for you to pick up the righteousness of Christ, you have to put your own righteousness down. You can never receive the righteousness of Christ as long as you're holding on to your own righteousness. It won't happen. But if you put your own righteousness down and you come to God, your Heavenly Father, and say, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner, please forgive me, you receive the righteousness of Christ. And you go away justified and forgiven like a free man. Now, for some of you, that's radical and new and shocking. And, and you, maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe you're new to the gospel. And you're like, I've never heard this before. That's amazing. And some of you have heard it before. You know that you come into God's kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But the problem is, even though we're in the kingdom, we don't try to live by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We're teaching our freshmen through Galatians. And there's one spot in Galatians that, I mean, is just really hung on my heart lately that we just went over. And Paul asked them this question in Galatians. He says, having begun by the Spirit, will you now be perfected by the flesh? See, the Galatians were affected by uh, these Jewish people who came in and they said, you can't just be saved by Jesus. You have to add circumcision. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's all you need. Are you now going to add circumcision to that to try to earn God's love? And that's where a lot of us stand. We believe the gospel of grace. We believe we've been saved and forgiven by grace. But then when we get into the Christian life, we try to add something else to it. 
We try to perfect ourselves based on the flesh, based on our own performance. And we do that by creating checklists. We all have a checklist, whether you like to write it down or not. I know there are some checklist people out there, and you've got it written out. I'm one of those people, okay? And there are some non-checklist people out there, and you may not have it written down on a sheet of paper, but you've got a checklist. And we have these checklists in our spiritual box, and we're trying to check these boxes every day. And we think, if I check this box, then I'm loved and accepted. If I check the quiet time box, I'm loved and accepted. If I check the social justice box, I'm loved and accepted. If I check the worship box, I'm loved and accepted. (laughs) What are we doing? We're trying to perfect ourselves based on the flesh at that point. We're trying to come to God in our own righteousness and say, Here, Lord, I'm loved and accepted based on my checklist. What's on your checklist? The thing that's on your checklist is the, thing to be, is the thing where you're most prone to believe in your own righteousness and not the righteousness of Christ. On my checklist, one of them is organization. Organization. And so I love to be organized. I love to have things planned out. That's sort of the surface level thing. Underneath that is a desire to control and perfect. Because I think if I have everything organized, if I have everything managed, I control it, I can perfect it, and everybody will like me, and I will like myself, and my Heavenly Father will like me. And so I live under this constant pressure to have everything organized. I live under this constant pressure to have the sermon organized, to have my wardrobe organized, to have my office organized, and I begin to believe sometimes that my Heavenly Father only loves me if I'm organized and if I've got everything under control. That's my checklist. And I never hate my Heavenly Father more than when I'm unorganized. Whatever's on your checklist will cause you to hate your Heavenly Father because you're going to operate out of a performance-based relationship with Him. And not only will it cause you to hate your Heavenly Father, it will cause you to hate others too. It will cause you to hold others in contempt. This happened to me and my wife uh, a couple weeks ago. I was at home, I was studying, and I couldn't find my coffee grounds. And I need my coffee to study. The morning is when I study, that's when I have my coffee. I need my coffee grounds then. I couldn't find them. And so immediately when I couldn't find them, what did I think? Where'd she put my coffee grounds? What did she do with the coffee? Surely I wasn't the one that lost the coffee grounds. It had to be her. And so I sat there and I stewed and I got angry and I got mad and I hated my lovely, awesome wife in my heart because I couldn't find my coffee grounds. How stupid is that? And she got home and I said, sweetie, because I tried to act like I wasn't angry, sweetie, where are the coffee grounds? I don't know. You mean you moved them and you don't know where you put them? How do you know I moved them? Well, I can't find him. Well, I don't, I don't know where you put him. And then, I think it was later on that night, I was getting something for RUF, and I had been angry about this, way, like stupidly angry about it all day. And I opened the freezer door, and I looked down, and there were my coffee grounds in the freezer, and it dawned on me. I put my coffee grounds in the freezer. I was the unorganized one. I was the one who had the organization box on my checklist. And because my wife didn't have that box checked in my mind, I hated her. 
My own self-righteousness caused me to hold my wife in contempt. Whatever's on your checklist, that will be the thing that you will hold against other people. That will cause you to hold other people in contempt. Jesus doesn't let us separate our relationship with God from our relationship with others. I know just last week, uh, Blake preached on the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I know that he's talked about the, 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 the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our relationship with each other, our horizontal relationships, are directly correlated to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Jesus does it again. He connects them in this parable. Notice in verse 9, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So they were trusting in themselves, and then look what it says right after that, and treated others with contempt. So their self-righteousness, their self-justification between God led them to hate others and to hold others in contempt. Our self-righteousness and our self-justification will lead us to hold others in contempt around us. And it's only through the upside-down radical nature of the gospel that our character can be changed and that we can be humbled and we can love our neighbors well. Jesus summarizes it here in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. If you put yourself above other people, if you say, I've got my checklist, I've filled it all out, therefore I'm good, and there's all these other people down here, they're not reformed, they're not evangelistic, they're not social gospel driven, whatever else, you're going to exalt yourself above them and you're going to hold them in contempt. And Jesus said, in the kingdom of God, if you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. You're going to be brought low. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. exalted. But if you come to God the Father and you say, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner, and you utter that humble prayer, and you open your hands and you receive the righteousness of Christ, then all of a sudden now you have placed yourself down here and you've placed other people above you. And you begin to love them well. You begin to cherish them. You begin to serve them. And Jesus says, that's when you're going to be exalted. You will never be able to love your neighbor well as long as you're holding on to your own self-righteousness. It won't happen. Because every time you go to love your neighbor, you're going to hand them that checklist that you think that you keep, and you're going to force them to try to keep it. And they can't, and they won't. And all of your relationships will slowly die. The only way to have a thriving, loving, fruitful relationship with your Heavenly Father is to receive the, the righteousness of Christ. The only way to have a thriving, loving, fruitful relationship with your neighbor, with your spouse, with your kids, is to receive the righteousness of Christ so that you can exalt them and hold them up. When you realize that your Heavenly Father loves you and accepts you based on Jesus Christ and not based on your performance, then you can love other people based on Jesus Christ and not based on their performance. The way to love your heavenly father more, the way to love your neighbor more, is to realize that you're the tax collector and that you need God's mercy 
and to come to him and say, Heavenly Father, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And I know that you love me based on Jesus Christ and not based on anything else. I'm a performance-driven person, and if you're out there, you're just like me. Uh, and I think maybe we're all performance-driven in, in some ways. And I know that every night I lay my head on my pillow and I struggle to know that my Heavenly Father loves me. I want to I go through my spiritual resume. I want to go through my pastor resume, my husband resume, my son resume. And if I don't have all those boxes checked, then I begin to beat myself up. And what my Heavenly Father says to me is that he says, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Because that's what he said to Jesus when Jesus was baptized. Your Heavenly Father looks at you and says, you are my sons and daughters in whom I am well pleased. The ticket's been paid. Go and love your neighbor. Go and love them well. Receive my grace, my forgiveness. That's the upside-down message of the kingdom. That's the upside-down life of a Christian. Does that shock you? Does that surprise you? Let's pray that that would surprise us and wake us up, and that would lead us into a greater love for our Father and a greater love for our neighbor. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Father in heaven, you are our Father. You love us based on Jesus and not based on us. That's so amazing, yet we forget it time and time again. And time and time again, Father, we come to you with our spiritual resume, whatever it is. We come to you with our organization. We come to you with our work. We come to you with our parenting. We come to you with all these things, and we try to earn your love through those things. And you look at us and you say, I love you, but it's not based on anything you've done. It's based on Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd make that real to our hearts. I pray that it would shock us, that it would surprise us, and that we'd love you more, and that we would love our neighbors better. Father, there are neighbors out there in Owasso that, that need to hear the gospel, need to hear and experience and feel the love of Jesus. And they won't be able to do it if we're constantly giving them a checklist of spiritual things to do before we accept them. Father, I pray that we would go and talk to people out of the love of Christ and not out of our own self-righteousness. And I pray that you'd bring many into the kingdom through that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.